Welcome to the Fire and Bones podcast, a weekly conversation on the text we are preaching to help each other rightly handle the word of truth. I'm Nathan Loudon, the pastor of Millwood Baptist Church. And I'm Michael Crosswhite, the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Now, I know what you might be thinking. There are several good preaching podcasts out there, so why another preaching podcast? And Nathan, why another preaching podcast? passage comes to our mind is Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 9 if I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary with holding it in and indeed I cannot that's just a thought for us we are here every single week helping each other wrestle with our text so that we might be better preachers of God's word So each week, we'll be looking at the passage that each one of us will be preaching that week. We'll identify the points that we feel are in those texts. We'll talk about how we're going to deliver that to the congregation, perhaps talking about illustrations, how we plan on helping our congregation understand or feel the passage, and then best of all, getting input from the other person on things that we potentially hadn't considered in our passage. Our contact information is in the show notes, so feel free to reach out to us with any questions that you might have. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to give us a follow and a five-star rating. Most of all, tell your pastor friends about us. We hope this to be a resource for you, and we hope you will enjoy this week's episode as we discuss through our texts in Matthew and Revelation. Here's a question for you. Speaking of timing, you were late today to our conversation because uh, you had a phone call with one of your members who uh, is in the hospital uh, or husband of a member who's in the hospital. And that's a regular thing on a weekly basis for me, at least. Um, I have put something in a scheduled time to prepare preaching. I get a phone call. I get an email something needs care, even if it's my own family, how many weeks do you say, would you say you actually study your sermon and all the time you have planned to study your sermon? Oh, it's almost never. Um, (laughs) Before COVID, before COVID, it was less frequent. I would say during COVID, a lot of people have kind of stayed distant and may have a phone call, but it's, you know, not, it, it's more common for me to be able to have a little bit more time during the kind of the last year or so. But before then, it was like, man, a lot of times, unfortunately, you know, the family suffers on the back end of some of that. And I think COVID's taught me a mm-hmm. lot just about time management and mm-hmm. things like that. I've also gotten a lot faster at writing sermons and, you know, processing information. Do you think that's a good thing? That you've gotten absolutely. Faster. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who wants it? Okay, so tell me what you think about this. I was at a Simeon Trust workshop a couple weeks ago, and some of the pastors were being asked how much time they spend preaching. And one guy who was helping lead the workshop, hosting it, said 30 hours a week. 30 hours a week. Hmm. Can you imagine? I thought that was. 
a lot. That's a lot. Not just not just for writing a sermon period, but a lot of the pastor's week. And I'm not saying that brother is wrong. I think it's admirable. It made me want to listen yeah. to his sermon. This well, Sunday. you know, it, <laughs> um, I think that. But that's the, a struggle. Um, you know, the the hard part, and and and. and, and I think some of this has come about over the last year is I've begun to see more that really the pastor, the pastor's chief job of discipleship is really in the pulpit week in and week out. There Mm -hmm. are times that I have with individuals in our congregation. Um, You know, right now uh, I'm barely getting into the process of getting kind of two levels deep in discipleship where the, some of the people that I'm discipling are discipling Mm -hmm. other people. And um, I'm barely mm-hmm. getting into that right now, you know, and so, uh, but, but, and so I meet with people, you know, from time to time, and I see that as some form of discipleship, but my regular, hey, we're going to meet every week at this time, and I'm going to work through these things with you, and that kind of thing, that's going to be infrequent, you know, and short-lived, and what my real hope is, is that they're, they're mainly doing that for other people, and that my chief mm-hmm. responsibility is going to be in teaching on, for me, it's going to be Wednesday night and Sunday morning, mm-hmm. you know. And mm-hmm. if, if I'm not doing that and I'm not dedicating a lot of my time to do it, I, I'm just amazed in Act 6. I come back to that all the time where there's an opportunity to feed poor mm-hmm. people at the table. And the disciples, mm-hmm. the apostles go, it's not right for us to take away the teaching of God's word to do this. So they create mm-hmm. a whole position in the church to just handle that stuff that they can't mm-hmm. do or it would take away from the preaching and teaching of God's word. And mm-hmm. so when you think about what they did, I mean, how, how radical that is. Most most pastors, and I know I would feel the responsibility and I would feel kind of even maybe even the pressure from the congregation to go, I need to take mm-hmm. this on my own shoulders. I need to do this because I'm the pastor, you know? And they're like, mm-hmm. no, you're the pastor. Mm-hmm. You need to be teaching and preaching. What are you doing? You know, this is God's mm-hmm. time. You, yeah. You're the person who is delivering yeah. God's word to them. And you know what I mean? <laughs> I, and and yeah. we don't need to be bashful about that, you know? But that being said, I don't need to labor over a sentence for six hours. You know, I mean, yeah. Well, maybe I don't know. Do you? I, no. <laughs> <laughs> You've just gotten so fast that that no, would, I mean, that I would think... never happen. But you would say sometimes that you come to places, you come to an understanding of a passage where it's like I, 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 I did my routine. I did my exegesis. I have my context. I have my uh, my aim. I've, I've even got an illustration idea, but it just it just hasn't struck home yet. It's not. It doesn't feel internalized. I understand it, and so that sometimes the time isn't even the study, but it's like my son for Christmas got a rock tumbler. Yeah, my ever, kids want one these? so bad. <laughs> yeah, you should get one. They're awesome. Just make sure you put it in the garage okay. or something. It's loud. But the the point is, you you put in your rocks. They're rough. They are um, 
Yeah, they look like you picked them up in a parking lot. Uh, you add some sand and water. You let it tumble around for a week. You drain that. You add a different grade of sand. Let it tumble around for a week. The day and night, you take that water and sand that. You put in an even finer sand. And you let that tumble around for a few days, for you know another week. And then it comes out all shiny. And it, this thing is revealed. I feel like sometimes that's the time that we need in preaching. It's not just the technical work. But it's a, it's a spiritual work where it, for lack of better terms, it gets stuck in our bones. That we're not just trying to read this like we read a newspaper. Um, but sometimes I've had majority of my sermon done uh, and it still is kind of seeping into my, my bones and my soul so that I preach it from an internal conviction and burden versus just mm. a mental understanding. So I, I would say I could write a sermon in a couple hours. But I, I don't think that I can get the weight and the gravity and the, the, the tone of my text without sitting in it for a while. It's like a good conversation with your wife. She can send me a text message and pass me on some information. But if I sit and listen to her for a while, I really begin to learn how she's doing, how she feels, what's going on, and I understand totally different, even though it might have been the same words. So I don't know. I think that's a challenge for time, too. Yeah, um, I mean, to, to echo kind of what, and, and to, to, you know, kind of, I guess, back you up on that or echo that, uh, that, that I can't tell you how many times a significant piece of a sermon, whether it be you know, like you talk about the adornment of a of a, a text, like mm-hmm. a, an illustration, sort of a, an emotional connection to the passage, has come on Sunday right. morning. I remember one time in particular that, that I was preaching, and I believe it was in Colossians, and we were. I was. It was a sermon on really the the impact of the church, and I don't remember which sermon it was and what, what text exactly it was, but I remember waking up one Sunday morning and the alarm went off or whatever. And I, I woke up and as soon as I woke up, I had this, just this image in my mind of a person in the middle of the cold war and working in a, at an outpost in a country whose language he didn't speak and thinking of himself as like uh, of this person as um, never being able to speak his native language, never being able to, to talk with anybody or share anything in common, and just going to his little military outpost and punching his buttons and going home and living by himself in complete isolation. And I, I had this image of him walking through the woods one day, going home, and stumbling upon hearing in the distance uh, a radio that's singing the Beach Boys. And and him like kind of his ears perking up and thinking, I know that, what is that? And like walking towards the sound and finding there a group of people huddled around this radio eating like Reese's peanut butter cups and things that were like Americana, you know, making (laughs) s'mores and things like that. And him Mm -hmm. talking with these people Mm -hmm. and they're like, yeah, we meet here all the time. And we, and, and speaking English for the first time in years, you know, 
and what what that would feel like. Yeah. And so immediately I started writing this down. And when I delivered this, I, I basically at the it was at the end of my sermon, and I said, you know, just bear with me when, as we kind of help you understand what the church really is. It's a people coming together, sharing a native language, but the language that we're sharing is the language of mm. heaven, and we're here to you know, build each other up with this, with these words, you know? And I remember, Mm -hmm. I mean, there was, I couldn't deliver it with a dry eye. The people in the congregation couldn't hear it with, with a dry eye, you know? And it it was one of those things that didn't come to me until a week long, I mean, pushing the limit, you know, but a week long of sitting in the text. And then Sunday morning, it just hits me. And I, in my office I, that morning at six o'clock, I'm pouring it out on, you know, on paper yeah. so that I could deliver it. So it's happened time after time, you know. And, and that's the, and that's the mm-hmm. Lord's kindness, I think, to bring things to mind um, where you, you couldn't, you know, unless you just happen to, I find things all the time that I just happen to be reading in a book this week. And I and you know I, I just sat down Colossians. I'm reading a biography, and I go, man, that fits. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm using that. Other times, like you just described, um, where does it, you, you can where do you, mm-hmm. where does this stuff come from? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I think the Lord is mm-hmm. just helping. Um, so yeah, but I, I think some things like that. By the way, that's an awesome illustration. One day when you write a yeah. book, you should put it in there. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I didn't cry yet, but maybe. If well, I you got to let me deliver it, man. You got to let I me think. really. Do it. I was just <laughs> describing it. I wasn't delivering it. You were just. Dis- right. You weren't even doing. It. Yeah, I'll have to give. I have to go back into that sermon. Um, but I think it. I just think that a lot of those things happen when time is taken to sit on your text for a while and meditate on it. Let it steep like tea. When I talk about meditation at our church, I always talk about tea steeping and how meditation is not learning new things. It's getting it into us like, like yeah. tea into water, putting it in the sun, letting it seep in. And well, and it's that's, also, that's something it's also by the way, quick. not the Hindu way of meditating. I mean, it's the problem with things like yoga and things like that. Right, yeah, it's empty, empty your mind, mind, and we're actually yeah. trying to fill it up, you know, with things we already know. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it makes me think, too, how much preaching for the pastor really is Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2, the renewing of our minds. That, you know, we are not, as pastors, uh, perfect, matured, totally. Um, I, I have so many times found my preaching to be devotionally, in a sense, or... Uh, in a sanctifying way, helpful to me first. Um, and I, I think I've heard preachers say over and over um, that if it doesn't affect you first, that's a really bad thing. Um, and I don't know, in my experience, I've found if I, I... I do think myself, probably you, other preachers, could get up and give a good speech mm-hmm. any, any week. About any subject. I was a, a speech uh, on a speech team in college for a while. You can give speeches. But I think preaching has more to do with the fire mm-hmm. in your bones, for yeah. lack of a better term. 
Um, well, and I've had is. so many conversations, I think, too, with people, you know, just with people that are learning to preach and that are, you know, uh, learning to even just stand up in front of people and just deliver something, you know, and mm-hmm. it could be anything. But, but I think, you know, mm-hmm. mostly around preaching where – you know, it, where you, exactly what you're describing, the words on the page are fine. The truth of the text is fine. But the people in the congregation are having trouble being convinced that you believe it. And that's, that's de- mm-hmm. I mean, that's detrimental yeah. to, the, to the, the preaching of the word. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the conversation, you know, I, the illustration that I, I've always thought of is, uh, is and I don't, I don't who knows how, true it is but it's in every biography i've ever read of of yeah of whitfield and and franklin of franklin standing there and going you know somebody asking him well you don't believe this guy's this what this guy's saying and he says well i know but i know he believes it and there's something to that in preaching that you're convinced that this preacher is fully convinced in his own mind that this is true and there's something compelling about that yeah um and when a person is yeah. is gripped by this passage, and he personally has been changed by it, and I, and I think that it's such a yeah. it's such a hard thing to communicate to a congregation when you're preaching holiness and righteousness and saying to the congregation, "This right here is stepping on my toes." You know, I don't want you to feel mm-hmm. like I'm just yeah. line up, guys. I'm running you over with a, you know, with a Mack truck. I got hit by it first, you know, and yeah. and it is hard for me to say because I know, you know, my wife and I have this argument on Friday night, you know, whatever, and I'm preaching about that very yeah. thing on Sunday, and, you know, and right. <laughs> here comes the frog. <laughs> so yeah. as an illustration. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and you know, you're like, the whole yeah. time you're preaching, you're going like, my wife is probably sitting out there going, yeah, I wish you were perfect at this, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's, I mean, mm-hmm. that's the reality mm-hmm. is that we deal with. So, so let me, let me throw this out there. So I think one side of the preaching that takes time is the internalization, the, the impassioned preaching. Um, but we, we certainly don't believe that preaching is just um, an impassioned sure. message to rouse up the passion of others. We are tasked to rightly handle the word of truth and i think most of the most weeks so you know like we've said our this podcast is what we do every week anyway we we text and we end up getting on the phone talking for sometimes an hour a couple hours on the passage you're handling or i'm handling and i am always encouraged i i almost always get off those phone conversations and even if i have a lot more work to do than when i got on um, because I, I realize things I need to study, I get off the conversation deeply encouraged, more impassioned mm-hmm. to preach. But, but I would say that is really is a, a um, kind of a, a byproduct of most often the conversation starts with the need for understanding clarity about what the text is actually mm-hmm. saying and how you mm-hmm. might preach it. Because the the... Probably, I think it's fair to say the chief goal in preaching is the communication of God's word. How we do it, impassioned, burdened, is vastly important. Um, but an impassioned lie is no help. 
So we're wrestling every week to get to what does my text actually say? What's it mean? What question is it actually answering? So that I can tell that to my people. And I find every time that we do that uh, and we get closer and closer to the truth, I get more and more and more impassioned to go preach. Uh, and sometimes start thinking, I should be preaching your book instead. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the connection between truth and passion is, I mean, it's an important one. Mm-hmm. Neither one is divorced from the other. The One has mm-hmm. to be fueled yeah. by the other. Because, you know, you've got, like, even in my passage this week in Matthew, uh, you have a people who are communicating, the Pharisees are communicating passion about a particular thing to a hmm. group of people, mm-hmm. but there's absolutely no truth to it. Or mm-hmm. you might say it the other way around. Maybe maybe it's that they're communicating the truth to a group of people without communi- without having any real passion for it themselves. I mean, either way you want to look at it, I think it's kind of the same thing. The point is that the two are divorced from each other. Mm-hmm. And... And so what, what I'm, you know, what we're saying, I think, is that in the pulpit, the truth and the passion have to meet. And if you've got good content and truth, but no passion, people think that they're being sold something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're being sold a bill of goods. Like, mm-hmm. you don't actually believe it, but you want me to believe it. You mm-hmm. don't actually use the product, but you want me to do it, you know? Yeah. And, you know... But on the other side is where there's passion, but no truth. And that's right. just emotional manipulation. I mean, every mm-hmm. prosperity gospel preacher in the world does that every week. And not even um, prosperity gospel preachers. I I think there's some preachers that are maybe a little bit closer to home. Absolutely. are excellent communicators, um, uh, get the fruit of decisions, um, tell a lot of great stories but when you're looking at the bible and listening to what they say it's it's hard to say it's one thing right um and that's not only in the uh the the crazy far out churches um it's uh, it's closer to home a lot of time i think that's i think that's discouraging sometimes as yeah. a pastor yeah. it's just seeing people sitting under that i've had people leave our church and go to other churches for those purposes yeah um and that's it's sad it's It's absolutely sad yeah and and but you know too you you run the when you have truth a good true solid sermon and passion on the other end what you'll what you often find and i think this is discouraging tell me how you feel about this but when you see people that uh, get your passion and they're attuned to your passion, but it's the truth of what you're saying that they hate and they leave mm-hmm. and they go find someone that's devoid of truth, but mm-hmm. conveys the same passion, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that, you know, if they go find somebody who speaks truly, but, you know, has kind of more of the Jonathan Edwards, like just, uh, you know, head down, yeah. monotone. Hey, fine. Well, I'm you know, okay with it. I, but yeah. I think too. I don't think anyone. I, I don't think I rarely. I don't, I don't think I've been applauded over the years much for being a good preacher. I, or at least maybe I don't remember if that is the case. I it's unknown to me. 
Um, <laughs> but what I enjoy and remember the most is when people come up and talk to me about what they learned in God's Word mm-hmm. and how that affects their, their lives. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me, one of the I think one of the most important passages for me as a preacher is 1 Thessalonians 2.13 where Paul says, We thank God for this and that when you heard the Word of God, you recognized it for what it was, the Word of God, mm-hmm. not the Word of man, which is at work in you who believe. Mm-hmm. And so Paul's saying, I'm thankful that when you heard the gospel that we preached that came in in power and conviction from chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, you heard that word and you recognized it. I think like you said, like the Beach Boys out in the war zone, mm-hmm. uh, you recognized it for what it was, the word mm-hmm. of God and not the word of man. And mm-hmm. an impassioned word of man doesn't build up believers and it doesn't save the lost. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's what we're doing most weeks as we're trying to get to, in our conversation, we're trying to get to the point of the text Mm-hmm. And in so doing, I, I I just get more encouraged every week. Yeah. Um, yeah. About my text and about preaching in general. So let me ask you this: on your passage this past week, how did it how did it go? Whenever you got up there to preach it, the one that we talked about last week that I preached yeah. this week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it went well. Um, I think my illustrations were um, short. And potentially dry-ish, um, but I think it went okay in that I was trying to show explicitly. I probably had a lot more exegesis in my sermon with the people than is probably typical for most Sundays. Um, but we took the second half of the sermon, and I said, "Turn to um, Exodus nineteen six. Turn to Daniel seven. Turn to Zechariah twelve then turn to Mark 16, then turn to John 19, then now let's look again at Revelation 1, 4 through 8, and and see them all come together. So we, we did that together, which is kind of like showing your math work. Uh, so I feel like for a little bit there, it was kind of like, you know, is this going to, where, where's this going? Um, I think we landed somewhere, and mm. I think it was encouraging. Um, uh, How did the people respond to it? Um, man, that seems like a year ago now. Um, I think good. Um, I had a few people respond about those passages after the sum after Sunday. Uh, so thankful for that. Um, but otherwise, not too much feedback this week. I'm curious to see as you go through Revelation because. I think pastors build up a fear in their mind of like preaching through a really difficult book like that. And so Mm -hmm. they starve their people because they don't do it. But then I think when they do it, they find that it's not nearly as bad as you thought it was going to be. And that people in general are a lot more uh, apt to give you a little bit of leeway, recognizing exactly how hard it is. Yeah. This book is really hard, and that they're so starved for it, they're like, "Man, any bit of help you can give me in this book mm-hmm. is good," you know. Yeah. And so I'm curious well, to see how that develops in your own congregation. Yeah, I think. I mean, I've been here ten years. I think those who have been around for any any amount of time will know that preaching is about a regular diet for your soul. Um, mm-hmm. You may leave this week and go, "Man, Nathan sounded tired. That wasn't the." That, I even had someone tell me a few weeks ago it sounded like I preached two sermons because it was so uh, 
discombobulated. I sounded like I finished a sermon halfway through, then started another one, and then finished that one. Um, <laughs> and so, and I think they were right. I, I think it was organized like that, and it wasn't helpful. The plane sounded like it was about to land, and then it took off again. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I think I keep that in mind that that's right. I, I don't want to do that. I can't do that every week. You know, kind of flirt that we're going to end, and then you know, spend 20 more minutes on another sermon. Um, so the the weekly regular preaching, I think, gives me a little bit of relief that this wasn't my, you know, I'm not preaching at Passion 2000, and this is my one sermon to 30,000 students or, or you know, whatever, however many were there, um, that I'm going to come back next week and keep, keep preaching. I, I do think that will affect the way I think this week. This week, I think, has more Old Testament references than last week. And I'm going, I can't, there's no way. I can't do 12, turn to your Bibles in the Old Testament and just walk through them all. Um, so I'm going to have to do more synthesizing and relaying understanding and feeling, I think, uh, because of that. So, how do, you get, how do you get feedback from your sermons? Um, I mean, when people are asleep, that's a main, that's a real big indicator. Um <laughs> in the sermon um we had one member who's a dear member faithful member serving member encouraging member and uh busy at work and there would be some weeks where i could tell you what time she was going to go to sleep almost on the Mm. on the number Mm. um i think that has maybe to do with my preaching maybe to do with her uh schedule and uh, being really busy um Mm. so yeah what was your question again how do you get feedback? Feedback. Week to week? Um, so we have, I do a little service review with myself and our associate pastor. If he preaches, I give him feedback. Uh, last week he gave me some good feedback, and he said, um, you know, when you got to this point where you brought all these Old Testament passages together, I would have loved to hear them. Expl- maybe one more step of explicit connection added um, that I might have left them out there a little bit implied. Maybe it would have been good to tie them together a little bit tighter. So there's that formal sense. But otherwise, I don't elicit a lot of feedback from our congregation. Um, In our elders' meetings from time to time, I will receive unsolicited feedback, um, uh, helpful critique, or encouragement. Uh, At times, I just ask our elders to tell me, how's it going? How is this this ministry going? but most weeks, it's with my associate pastor and any unsolicited feedback from the congregation. And what are those feedback sessions? What do you ask him in your with your associate pastor? Um, I'm leaving it pretty open. We've talked a lot about uh, in other formats and when he's preparing to preach, uh, how to prepare a sermon, uh, what we're shooting for in preaching a sermon. Um so those tools are kind of always in the bag uh, and increasingly to get better in my, myself as well. Um, but generally it's pretty much, what did you hear? Um, what do you remember that was helpful? Anything that confused you or distracted you uh, rather than helping? Uh, mm-hmm. And whatever that is, take it and apply it and learn from it. 
we do the same thing nearly every week in staff meeting and I ask for uh, I used to ask for positives and negatives and then I realized mm-hmm. it's really difficult to give your boss negatives and uh, <laughs> for some reason and I don't I've never really felt that way but I know other people <laughs> really, really do. <laughs> um, I've but, never uh, sensed that in you. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but, uh, but so what I started doing was saying, uh, and I think I got this from Mark Dever, if I remember right, which was instead of saying positives and negatives, it was things that were helpful and things you would do differently if you had it to do over again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or things you would add to the sermon that would, perhaps be helpful or take away that right. distracted and I think yeah. those are tend to be more helpful and it gives a little bit of a safer ground I think for people to feel like they can you know they can yeah. give you critical yeah. feedback but still even still you know with people our yeah. staff sometimes they're like and this wasn't so much a, a bad thing and, and and maybe it's my fault you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, maybe I just didn't hear it right you're right yeah, yeah you're yeah. like come on just tell me you know no, I'll tell you this is a quick story I'm thankful for uh, our elders in our church and their ministry in this way for my first couple of years during Christmas, I think every year I, I was just taking cheap shots at sentimentalism and kind of attacking it as anti-gospel, anti-Bible, wreaths are bad, Santa's bad, everything's everything but Jesus is bad. Uh, I don't know if I said it in those terms, but I just, I was, I was really harping on that. And after service one Sunday, my elders brought me up in the office. Uh, he might not have been an elder then, I don't think, and said, uh, closed the door and just looked at me and said, are you okay? How are you doing? And I was like, I'm fine, man. Did you hear that fire I just preached down there? I'm feeling good. Like, yeah, I'm fine. And he said, you sound angry. You sound angry at Christmas. And I was like, I, I am a little bit. I'm trying to fight something here, but... He he just helped me go. You just you just sound you don't sound excited about Jesus. You just sound angry about Christmas. Um, and I don't know if he said it in as many words, but I heard that and I thought, a, I love you. This is so helpful. I did not even realize myself, and uh, you know, two I, that is technically helpful to get feedback to not do that next week. So yeah. yeah. And then you said, bah humbug, and shut the door on him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Same. Yeah. Yeah. And he goes, why don't you go sip your hot chocolate, and I'll <laughs> go back to preaching the gospel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly how that conversation ended. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you have this week? What, what's your passage this week? This week is Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 through 20. And this is... Oh my goodness. Don't, why why do you got to do that? What does that mean? <laughs> uh, no, it just gave me maybe panic do that a little every, bit. Are you going to do that every week in Revelation? <laughs> Probably. I mean, I'm already lacking courage here, man. We're in the book already. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. All right, yeah, you want to go that far? Okay, okay. Good. I was go feeling ahead. really confident until this moment right now. <laughs> no, I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> I'm sure no one will be lost. (laughs) (laughs) This is the passage where, I'm looking at at Romans, this is the passage where uh, the voice speaks to John on the island of Patmos. Uh, He hears the voice, he receives a message, he turns around, 
and he sees the one who is speaking, and we get the vision of Jesus, uh, we learn as Jesus as the one who has died and is now alive. This is the vision of Jesus with fire coming out of his eyes, a long robe, golden sash around his chest, his head is, is white, uh, like wool, like snow, his voice like the roar of many waters, um, and he's got the seven stars in his hand, and around him are seven lampstands. And uh, then you have John falling on his feet, um, and then Jesus coming to put his hand on him and explaining who he is and explaining a little bit about what John saw. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, there you go. So, That's where we are. All right, I have, I have many questions. Okay. But first among them is right there in verse 9. Okay. Where John takes the term tribulation. Yeah. And which obviously is a you know, a very debatable and con- controversial word in in church circles, you know. Right. And he says, you know, we're in it right now. Mm-hmm. I'm your brother and partner in the tribulation. Mm-hmm. How much do you feel like that is reflective of what he'll later refer to as the Great Tribulation. Is that something you're going to bring up with the congregation? Are you going to kind of, you know, put your cards on the table in terms of what your understanding of the Tribulation really is and those kinds of things right now? Or is that really important in the text? I am probably not going to try to define my definition of the Great Tribulation this Sunday. And the reason is, I, I do think Paul is, or uh, sorry, John is speaking enough to say that I'm in what you're in to the seven churches. We'll be talking more about the seven churches and the audience and how this book relates to the passage immediately, how this section re- relates to the passage immediately after it. But John is saying, um, contextually, I'm a partner with what you are in. And I think his original audience, the question really becomes, the greater question is, of are all these letters, because John is writing this to the seven churches, the question is, are all these letters intended only for those seven churches? Or are they intended for the church in the coming time? And we've already made that decision. We've already said um, that the seven stars, the seven churches, the seven angels to those seven stars, the seven spirits, all of the sevens are kind of John's language for telling us um, that there's a a perfect, holy, um, whole purpose of God in these things. So the seven churches themselves, actual churches, actual people, also that there are seven symbolize that this is kind of the sevenfold danger that the church... uh, is going to be in in this time and uh, so that yes we are a partner in so much as we are going to face the same dangers that those churches are facing which are are not um, the great tribulation time limited challenges they're challenges that have to do with wealth and faithfulness and purity of doctrine things like that so I don't think John's emphasizing that yet what he is doing is uh, relaying his vision of the Lord and the place of the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches, 
and showing this is where they are um, in relation to Christ in heaven. So what I think the text is emphasizing is John's setting at the beginning is I'm on the island of Patmos because of the word of on account of the word of uh, God and testimony of Christ. Um, I'm a partner with you in the tribulation and the kingdom and the endurance. So we're in this together. And then he sees the vision of Christ. Christ's interpretation of that vision is that the very last thing in it is that those seven lampstands are the seven churches. So I think what John's doing is saying, look, this is our setting right now. This is our setting here on earth. And then he sees where they are set in heaven, the lampstands. And he wants the hearers to see where they are in heaven as compared to where he is on the island. And he's going to use it that way in the letters, or the Spirit is, in, in the message. The very first letter includes a warning, if you do not repent of these things, I'm going to remove your lampstand. So I think that's helpful because it's telling us what you should take in from chapter 1 into chapter 2 is a great treasure and appreciation and thankfulness that while this is our setting on earth, this is our lampstand in heaven. We are in the throne. And it's temple language. The lamp, the lampstands are temple language, right, that are hearkening back to um, the seven-candled lamp that's in the temple before God's presence. Mm -hmm. So it's like we're, we're in the And Jesus, the, the high the priest throne. who tends the candles. Hello, yeah. So I think that's the main emphasis. I, I just think that the the tribulation, the whole seven years thing, that will that will be distracting, and I'd have to be really, I'd have to take a, a long road off my text, come back to it, and then refocus. I I think if that were my a question I wanted to answer in the way you're describing. Yeah, this has got to be a a huge challenge in Revelation, in particular, is that every week you're going to have temptations to chase this rabbit or that rabbit. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, you know, I think so, there's so I many think, different trails you could walk down. I think the other temptation is to try not to simp to preach the whole book of Revelation from 30,000 feet. Yeah. So that we never wrestle with those things. Which is the tem yeah. temptation. I think I'm actually going to feel more. Hmm. Um, is to not boil down to the higher, easier-to-understand viewpoint, you know? Mm -hmm. well, way up here, Jesus wins. That's, uh, let's just say it that way, right? Um, but to actually get closer to what the text means uniquely to the rest of the book. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's the text, kind of how I'm, I'm planning to preach it so far. Mm. And I've got this great illustration about this guy. He's in a field in World War II. <laughs> 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 it's great. It's going to be so good. <laughs> yeah. I'll send it to you so that please, you can be really Please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what, uh What it, other what when you look at that text, I don't know if you have it in front of you. What else? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Do you think do you look at that and go, "Man, I I think if you don't mention this or hit this, you you miss the point or there are other things that you go Wow, this is a big question. Let me put it this way. Well, is there anything in that text that if you're listening in the pulpit this week and I don't answer that question, you're going, why didn't he say anything about that? Well, you know, I, I don't know. On the second part of that, I don't, I'm not sure I could 
necessarily answer that question, but I, I would say this. Every time I've read this passage and I've taught it, you know, I've taught through Revelation, not at this church, but I've taught through Revelation two or three times. And the part of this passage that has just brought tears to my eyes is you, you kind of alluded to it. I mean, you pretty much described it, which is giving as an introduction to these churches and to John, Jesus is talking about the eternal realities of what is really going on here. You know, the mm-hmm. consequences of you mm-hmm. as a church. What mm-hmm. what what consequences doctrine, orthodoxy, and practice, orthopraxy, mm-hmm. really has for you as a church. And so you, you're going to see that in, in Ephesus and Laodicea and Smyrna and Sardis and all, all of these churches that he mentions, that there is something with orthodoxy or orthopraxy, for five of them at least, that are askew, that are off, mm-hmm. and that they need to repent, repent from. Mm-hmm. You know, Ephesus, you've lost your first love, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And but but he's he's zooming out and he's saying, hey, this is this is the eternal perspective that you need mm-hmm. to keep in mind. I am the high priest and I walk among your lampstands. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you know, repent and do what you're called to do as a church, I'm going to snuff out your lampstand. But the part that has just brought tears to my eyes, I think, is the encouragement that comes with him saying, you know, uh, or, or with him being the first and the last, having mm-hmm. the keys of death and Hades, mm-hmm. um, that he is the living one. I mm-hmm. died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. That, mm-hmm. that, that church, I'm expecting you to do these things. However, what mm-hmm. I also want you to, to note is who I am. Mm-hmm. And some of these churches are going to be told that they're about to— encounter intense persecution and some of you are going to die but you need to understand that if you have an eternal perspective on this if you Mm -hmm. if you keep your eyes affixed on the one who has the keys to death and hades you're going to be ushered into life that all Mm -hmm. death can do is translate you from one state to another Mm -hmm. and what's coming is going to be entirely worth it and so as he, he describes all these things to these churches after introducing himself this way, and what are you getting for but this magical, just um, unbelievable scene before yeah. the throne of God, you know, and then yeah. the lamb who stands there, and yeah. John is weeping because he has the authority to issue judgment, you know, yeah. on behalf of the churches to the world. And so, like, so I think that part of the passage of going, you know, these, the governmental authorities, the beast, as it were, whatever, whatever you want to say, they have power and, you know, they're, they're threatening and they're going to kill us. But the one who has the keys to death in Hades is the one I serve. So and I want to, I want to say something so, yeah. to encourage you because I think that's encouraging and helpful to me. And then I'm going to ask a clarifying question. I, that's encouraging because that's kind of how we were thinking about it generally as we planned the service this week. So like Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 is our scripture reading. And, and chapter 2, verse 7 ends with, and seated us with him in the heavenly places after his mm-hmm. resurrection. And the whole gospel is in front of it. Most people know 2, 8, for by grace you've been saved. 
But the gospel, the way we're having it read, includes he, he came to save us from death to life and seated us with him. But the gospel ends with where we're going one day. So that's how mm-hmm. our gospel reading ends on Sunday. Our pastoral prayer is from Colossians 3, to fix our eyes on things that are in heaven and not on earth. But that's what John's doing. He's directing your attention from earth to heaven to see where your where your lot is there. Mm-hmm. Um, my clarifying question is: is the is the point of the text who Jesus is, or is it because who Jesus is, you can be sure? of what is the point of this text, which is that your lampstands are with him in heaven. Does that make it's sense? It's that. Yeah, it's the latter. <laughs> because yeah. I think that in chapter 1, verse 4 through 8, Jesus is defined as the one born of the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who loved us and freed us. And that was... Sappy is the wrong word, but that was the look. This is this whole letter is from the one who loves you, and who died yeah. for you, and who freed you from your sins. And then this section is the comparison is between where John is on earth, where the lampstands are in heaven, and who is it telling us that the one who has died and rose forever, so you can believe it. That it's short. It's yeah. Cl- I mean, I think that's the point: is that your lampstands are with him in heaven. However, I don't think that payoff is is fruitful in any way without you understanding the Christ who's been presented mm-hmm. and giving. And it, it, like, if I were if I were setting this up in the pulpit, I think I would I would be saying I would want to include. Think about what they're about to hear. And then, and then think about what he's really saying he is to them, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. one who has the keys to death and Hades, and mm-hmm. taking a long road to set that up so that then the payoff is the point of the text, your lampstands are with him. They're mm-hmm. not, it's not with Rome. Your mm-hmm. lampstand isn't with the, the governmental powers and authorities. That, mm-hmm. that, that's in Rome or that's in America or that's wherever. Mm-hmm. Your lampstands are not with them. They, yeah. they don't have a, th- a way to threaten you, really. Yeah, Your lampstands are with him. And what and I, what, th- because this is who he is. Yeah. I think what's... I, I don't know if I can spend much time on, on this week. I think I may need to in the subsequent weeks. That's because you picked too many verses. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you just say, say what you think? Um, <laughs> I, just, I think I'm just I think a challenge is going to be, or, or what's interesting is that the challenge to the to church that Jesus gives them in chapters two and three is not. I mean, it's not Babylon. It's not Satan yet. It's not like Rome is going to oppress you. Your greatest challenge mm-hmm. is that you've left your first love. You've mm-hmm. loved wealth and pleasure. And you have forsaken the truth. And so I'm like, we, we, our first enemies in Revelation are not, they're contextually Rome, but they're not, it's not Babylon yet. That doesn't come from many chapters. Um, I think that says a lot about what it means to 
be in the tribulation with with, uh, yeah. with John and to fight Absolutely. and conquer. Absolutely. Um, what is it? It's defining the war terms, kind of in an Ephesians six kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I have a question about okay. your how how you're going to first of all when you preach every week do you make a concerted effort to talk to an unbeliever who might be hearing you and tell them what it means to be saved explicitly you know this is this is what we're talking about here or um and and in that then kind of a subset of that question is when you have a text that is so clearly gospel message saturated, you know, that is a, you know, we're not talking about preaching out of Leviticus, really. We're talking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. here is Christ, the first and the last, the one who was dead and, and rose from the dead. Like, so you, yeah. this is so gospel rich yeah. here. Do you find that sometimes even more challenging to, uh, present the gospel to somebody overtly or, you know, whatever, or do you find that necessary week in and week out? It is a conviction that that's what I ought to be doing every week. And I think that comes from passages like Luke 24, where Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and he tells uh, those two uh, disciples that all of the Old Testament is about him. Uh, from Moses to the Psalms to the prophets, they're all speaking to him. So if I'm preaching Psalms, if I'm preaching Moses, and I'm not preaching Christ, I'm not preaching the way Jesus understood Moses. And I think and when you say preaching, now w- let me clarify real quick, because yeah. when you say preaching Christ, you mean, do you mean like saying, and let me tell you, unbeliever, you know, this is what happened 2,000 years ago, this is how you can be saved, this is so on and so forth? Or do you just mean preaching the intention of the text, which is Christ, whether or not you make a personal appeal to that that unbeliever in that may be watching, listening, or in the audience? Yeah, I think it's both. I think I, if you're not taking your passage through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, you're not preaching it to anybody in its fullness, and you're probably preaching morality. I think for the unbeliever, Revelation has an, an, an especially difficult challenge because it is I mean a lot of the New Testament is written to believers on how to be believers and what to believe so you have to step out of that context and speak to the unbeliever with letters that are written to the church like Revelation for example mm-hmm. um, the gospel is so clear there the gospel connection is clear Jesus has died and rose again and what does that mean um, I'd probably say it's last Sunday I didn't do that well I don't remember doing a, a good moment where I stopped and said, now, if you're if you're not a believer of Christ, what does this mean for you? Mm-hmm. And address them directly. I think two weeks ago I did better um, in the beginning to say, this is what, I remember there being a moment, this is what Christianity is versus what it's not. It's grace. It's, uh, it's not works. If you're interested in, Christianity. If you're looking at Christianity, if you're here today and you're not a believer, just know that this is the difference between being a Christian and not. For you to become a Christian means to believe in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins. Um, I don't know if I say, if I direct that at unbelievers as clearly every single week, um, but that is an audience that I have in my mind. I think Revelation's tough because it, it is intended 
for people who are Christians. So uh-huh. I think this week in particular, as we talked about, I'm thinking in our culture, maybe you're thinking you're an unbeliever and you're going, I don't want to become a Christian. Why would I become a Christian? <laughs> that is ridiculous. And this is maybe helpful for someone to go, this is what the Bible is saying about what is the reward and the joy and the security uh, of those who are enduring with Christ. You, 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 you might lose everything, but you might gain everything kind of thing to an unbeliever. Um, so maybe I just, maybe yeah. you just wrote my sermon for me. Again. Well, the reason I, the reason I that I, I asked that question is because you got there's two you know really pow- who I consider to be really powerful preachers, um, one of which is more or less retired in John Piper and another you know, Mark Dever very much in the throes of ministry, and um, and I you listen to two of their sermons and Mark Dever in the middle of his sermon will just say and by the way unbeliever. Yeah. This is what we're talking about here. This is how you can be saved, and I would encourage right. you to do this, that, and the other. And right. Piper will very frequently—I mean, I would say probably more times than not—will not even will not say that at all. It, it's it's almost yeah. like the way he preaches it. Okay, here's the meaning of the text, and I, and I think he does that great. And I think he he gives the kind of emotional appeal of why you should believe this, what this changes about you, those kinds of things. But it's almost as if the unbeliever is is invited to the window of the house to look in and watch the family eat yeah. and, and know, not does, invited to the table. And I, I, you know, I know there's probably a, a pretty intense debate over which one you do and, and why and that kind of thing. And I, sometimes yeah. I honestly find myself with Mark Dever, and then sometimes I find myself with John Piper. And, and from sermon to sermon, it may be different. Well, we don't uh, say, for example, we don't do a formal altar call at the end of our service where we invite yeah. people forward to make That's, a public neither decision. Neither do we. Right. I don't. I don't. Does Piper do that? No, he doesn't. I, I don't. Dever, I don't think he does. I, I shouldn't say that. I don't think he does. I know Mark Dever doesn't, since we're just talking about those two examples. I don't know how that would affect that, um, um, but. I, I don't know. I, I do know it's it's not good to do that for a long time in your preaching ministry um, because you just never know who's there. And, I mean, we don't even assume all of our members are always saved. Uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 5 won't let us think that way all the time. But mm-hmm. everyone who shows up has been baptized has uh, not maybe come in as a, as a child in the church and assumed the gospel their whole lives. Mm-hmm. Um so, uh, so yeah, um, that's a, that's a tough challenge. Yeah, it is. Week in Let's and week out, it, it becomes different. It's challenging. Well, take that, take that question and give us your two-minute spiel on Matthew and then answer that question first. So uh, the passage that we're in on Matthew is we're entering into Matthew 23, uh, and we're going to be in 1 to 12 this week. And uh, this one is rather i think convicting for preachers you know he he's just come out of chapter 22 21 22 where he's given jesus has given three parables condemning the pharisees uh and sadducees and and all them then the 
Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees have taken an opportunity to try to trap Jesus and discredit him in front of the crowds with three questions to mm-hmm. which he has not only you know, got, gotten around the questions, but he's also kind of trapped them in their own question. Yeah. And then he closed that whole section with one question to the Pharisees last week, which was, why does David refer to the Messiah, uh, who is his son, as Lord? And the implication there being, if the Messiah is Lord, then you have to submit to him. And he sits on, you know, the seat of, you know, power that you Mm -hmm. have to submit to. Mm -hmm. And so now in 23, he's going to tell his crowd around him, the disciples and uh, the crowds, actually, not just the people that might end up being pastors of the church that he's Mm -hmm. beginning, but but also the crowds, too, um, to be aware of the hypocrisy of the scribes and Sadducees and and Pharisees. Specifically, Mm -hmm. he calls out the scribes and Pharisees, and, and he's going to explain why they are uh, hypocrites. And mm-hmm. so in this passage, basically he is exposing in the first half, what I think is probably verses one to seven. Um, he's exposing, uh, their hypocrisy in that they put on a lot of a big show. Mm-hmm. They, uh, ha- have, they want to be noticed. They want to be put in high, high uh, you know, the first chair in banquets and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They uh, want you to see the phylacteries that are bound around their head and the... Is that the actual the word? F- phylactery yeah. is, what it, what, is what the actual word. Okay. It just sounded funny in my mind. Like I'd never heard it before, but sounds familiar. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the, the phylacteries, the, those those big leather-bound boxes that they yeah. they would literally wrap to their forehead and they want them to be kind of big and prominent. Yeah. Um, and the fringes on their cloaks, they want to be long and so that you can actually see that they're, they're priests and they like places of honor and things like that. But I think what we have to dispel is this notion that, that the Pharisees think that their righteousness is Mm -hmm. a works-based righteousness. Mm -hmm. Jesus's point is the Pharisees have no righteousness. Their righteousness is that the quote unquote righteousness they have is all show. Mm-hmm. They don't actually do these works. Mm-hmm. They say that you should do them, but mm-hmm. they go home and don't do them. And he pointed mm-hmm. that out a while back um, where they get, they dedicate all their money as Corban to the Lord mm-hmm. and don't honor their father and mother. Mm-hmm. But they tell you, you should honor your father and mother. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus's point about the Pharisees and Sadducees is not that they think that righteousness is achieved by works. The problem mm-hmm. is they have no works, actually. Mm-hmm. They, the, all their works are just for you. They're not for the Lord at all. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. So, um, so there's this kind of showiness to their, to their righteousness, and they love these sorts of things, and that's what they're really after. Mm-hmm. And then there's the contrast in the second half of the passage, but you. And so he's contrasting the community of people that follow after Christ, the Christians, the church, are to be entirely different. And they're mm-hmm. to recognize that their justification comes from outside themselves. It is given to them. Uh, it is imputed to them, in other words. 
and that their uh, that their the their calling indicates that they should call each other brother, mm-hmm. that you recognize you're all on the same footing. You mm-hmm. know, none of you have deserved any of this salvation. You've been given it, and mm-hmm. you're to be a humble people, and you're to do the works that Christ has done, and you're to teach others to do it as well. Uh, not just teach others and don't do it like the Pharisees, but you need to teach others to do what Christ has done, and you need to do it yourself. And that's going to indicate that you're a humble person. You carry about humility. And so, so it's a it's a warning yeah. to pastors, but it's also a yeah. warning to uh, Christians as well. It's I'm interested to hear, before you answer the question about preaching to unbelievers, the transition from your last text, which was the the divinity of Christ through uh, David's psalm to this passage, it seems like a really hard break. Like, totally new scene, new people, or um, is it the same? Is there a flow from 22 to 23 that make this one big section? Yeah, I think this is uh, all connected in Jesus's long extended from chapter 19 on to the end of the book mm. war against the Jewish system mm. of practice and I think mm-hmm. he's bringing it down brick by brick um, mm. last week and I think he went after the scribes and Pharisees directly and I think he's mm-hmm. about to shift to talk to them directly mm-hmm. whether he's speaking to them or he's speaking um, to his own people about them mm-hmm. I, I don't know but but it, it does seem like he's attacking them specifically uh, after this passage. But mm-hmm. I, I think what he, this whole thing is, is one big brick by brick taking down of the Jewish system. And the next chapter will be the temple. You know, this mm-hmm. chapter is the leadership. And and so he's already attacked the leadership. And now he's turning to his community of followers and showing mm-hmm. this is why they're being condemned. Yep. They do not submit to me as Lord, as you just saw. They're unwilling to recognize the lordship of the Messiah. And second, now they also, here's the other reason. Here's the big thing that they're not telling you that you need to know. That -hmm. when they pray in the synagogues, they want to be seen by you. That's the Mm -hmm. reason they pray. They don't pray because they want to be heard by God. They pray to be seen by you. The reason that they love being Pharisees is because you give them that first seat at the table, and they love that. Uh The reason that they wear the things that they wear is so that you'll see them and you'll notice how righteous and holy they are, Mm -hmm. or they are perceived to be. But they're really not. They're ravenous wolves. They want all of this acclaim. They want you to think that they're righteous, but they're really not. inside they are dogs and they have no desire for holiness and they don't even believe in God and that is the problem right so not that not what they teach and in fact it's what's crazy about this is in verse 2 he recognizes their teaching authority and he tells his crowd so you do you do what they say but don't do what they do yeah right which is so so crazy I think to me um Quick question: How many how many sermons is this going to be? Are you going to preach twenty three one through thirty six all in one sermon? No, this is going to be. I think it's going to be tw- to twelve in this sermon, uh-huh. uh, thirteen, and I think probably go to probably thirty six ish, where the woes kind of then yep. stop, 
yeah. in, in in the second sermon, and in the third sermon be Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which is actually going to fall on Easter, believe it or not. Wow. Um, thirty-seven to, to thirty-nine in the Lord's providence, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, just a, an appeal to yeah. you know everyone. Yeah. Uh, of his his willingness to save. Mm-hmm. So I think it's three sermons in my in my mind. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that that changes the way you preach each of these woes. You're not preaching a sermon on tithing now, right? You're preaching right. the same thing that in, in you know, on one one of potential like six weeks in this. You're preaching all. Yeah, it's of like the there's one thing, and there's like three audiences, right? I mean, so you you've got he's talking to his own crowd, and in verse one, and all all the way to verse twelve. And then in 13, he turns, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Now, he may be talking to his own crowd still and just talking about them. Right. You know, you could see that happening. Or he could be turning to them who are standing there, maybe. Yeah. maybe um, the, either way, it doesn't really matter. back, peering over, yeah. watching. Yeah, but it's an audience, right? right? It's an audience that he's speaking, a different audience that he's speaking to. And then in 37, he turns to Jerusalem, the whole town, the city. Right. You know, that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as hens? Get yeah. a, hen a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. I mean, yeah. that, you know, so it's like three different audiences, and, and I'm really going to, you know, kind of, I think that I think that warrants three different sermons, you know? Yeah. So, so I, have, I have some thoughts in mind, but curious how, to, going back to the unbeliever question, which I think was a helpful one, uh, from my passage, what um, what I want to ask a more specific question: What in this what what dilemma or struggle with the gospel or the church does this passage address in the unbeliever? So we're just going to assume you're going to preach the gospel to unbelievers today. What in this passage actually helps unbelievers in a specific way that unbelievers struggle with? the gospel or the church well and it's i think some of this is is kind of challenging too because um you know there's obviously so much in here for for me as a as a christian that is like you know challenging in that um the your lifestyle must match your preaching you know and jesus cares about the lifestyle matching the preaching but you know i also think uh, about this, that um, one of the things that, that I see as common in our culture, but also in, in my own church, you know, is is that people often come to the service out of a sense of duty. I have to. And there's so many cultural things that are bound up in that. You know, I, mm-hmm. I have to because culture expects it, because I was brought up this way, because right, whatever. Right. Yeah. And it's it's always good, I think, to be reminded God is not impressed with your sense of duty, mm-hmm. and nor is should you be doing any of this because other people expect you to. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. There is a profound sense in which the Lord is looking at your heart, mm-hmm. and that is really what determines whether or not you are um, here for righteous reasons or not is is the heart behind your worship yeah 
And, and, and we've come back to that so many times in Matthew because Jesus has so many yeah. times in Matthew and, yeah. and really in all the gospels. I mean, let's be honest, it, the whole new Testament is driven towards that kind of yeah. that idea. But, but, uh, so I think that's incredibly convicting for, you know, that for, for Christians, but then also for unbelievers who, um, I think there's a tendency to say, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means, and you start looking at the things Christians do, mm-hmm. and that's the response you give. Well, that's what it means mm-hmm. to be a Christian. I, mm-hmm. I was on, I was talking to some people this week who are unbelievers and um, asked them what it, what the gospel really is. What does it mean to follow Christ? And um, what they gave back to me was what they see Christians doing, mm-hmm. which is it means to take care of the poor. It means mm-hmm. to help these people do this, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And, um, and they, what they didn't give me was the actual gospel. Mm-hmm. It is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and to follow him in both word and deed, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and to have a true sense in your heart of belief and devotion mm-hmm. uh, to him, to, you know, worship him because you see him as the ultimate treasure of your of your life mm-hmm. and worth giving everything up to follow mm-hmm. you know th- these things were not included in you know a typical gospel presentation from a secular world and so yeah. many people are sitting in our churches and they're doing so because they think that's what it means to be a christian mm-hmm. and they want to be seen by others as being a christian so mm-hmm. for the un- unbeliever you know they're put in the shoes of the pharisee who are doing this to be seen by others as a Christian. Right. I want to be known as being a Christian. But really, your heart, you should be here out of uh, a sense of devotion and love for the Lord. That's what drives us to our worship, you know, not a sense of being seen by others. It's what drives us to prayer, or else we wouldn't pray in our closets with the door closed, you know. We, we would pray out in public and things like that so that and we would give these kind of you know verbose you know explanations and things like that in our in our prayers because we want to be heard by others you know and he and Jesus is saying no 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 no, no. It, it, it's about the heart of why you really want to be here you know so what does it mean to come to Christ truly it, it means that your heart has been changed you know, inside your heart has been changed completely. So preaching to unbelievers, this is, I'm I'm hearing a word Pharisees, which unbelievers, usually churched unbelievers use a lot, which is that um, they don't want to go to the church because the church is full of Pharisees. Um, they weren't welcomed in church. You know, I've got stories of when I was a kid, I, I saw a member of the church I grew up in tell someone they shouldn't come back unless they could dress better than that. Um, I've got a memory of someone recently here in Austin telling me that they did not want to go to church because the church is full of Pharisees. Um, so I'm thinking that... that and, you know, we're known right now in America, I think, for um, being about uh, lar- largely in our kind of our cultural uh, knowledge is largely preachers on Fox News or CNN or wherever 
debating public policies and that we're known for being right and righteous, how much does that affect the way you might talk to an unbeliever when this is a, about about the Pharisees? Yeah, you know, I think the um, there's a tendency on all of our parts uh, to when we see someone in the culture that is revered in the culture. So recently thinking of people like Kanye, Justin Bieber, people like this that have kind of been at least public with some sort of faith, some sort of belief in Jesus Christ. And um, what, you know, on the outside at least, you know, seems to be some sort of genuine conversion. I don't know. I'm not there to judge them. But but we tend to think to ourselves like, oh, we have some— cool people in our corner now and <laughs> you, know, you talk to people and there's like this sense of you know well i mean justin bieber, bieber believes it or or, or kanye right, kanye believes right. it and so that it like gives some right. validity and so we feel like see culture we're cool now and and we want that presented on fox news no no we 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 are cool we don't need to be ostracized because this is the you know and we so want to be the dominant party and things like that and we want to be thought of and revered as acceptable in society and it's like jesus is going here that's not at all what you should be concerned about right uh, in in, in any way uh you instead should be concerned with that your words and your actions uh are are both consistent with what christ preached and did and that's where they should come together you know so question we talked about timing of the tribulation in revelation 1 You've got a little, you've got a little thing here too at the end in verse thirty-six, where Jesus says, "Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." Um, is that just simply a word of affirmation that um, what what Jesus has been saying is going to happen to these Pharisees? Yep. <laughs> uh, you know, th- th- this gets really difficult when you get into 24, but yeah. I-, I think that Jesus' words there about this generation, uh, and when he says in 24 that, you know, all these things will, you know, this generation will not pass away until all these things come take place, and um, yeah. I think he means this generation. And I think he's yeah. you know, referring to the judgment that's going to come upon the mm-hmm. Jewish system in the destruction of the temple. That's where you're going to yeah. see it happen. I think, too, yeah. part of that is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. You know, they're going mm-hmm. to see that. And I think for, you know, for Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of him, of himself, the, the Messiah, yeah. and the destruction of the temple is one big event. You know, is it separated by, what, like 40 years? Yeah, Mm -hmm. it is. But I don't think that's of any consequence to the Lord. I think he sees that all as one big event. In the same way that I think he sees, I think he sees the ministry of the Messiah, his resurrection, and the inclusion of people coming to salvation through Christ, and the second coming as one big event. Um, Mm -hmm. Which is why I think the prophets, when they're given kind of this sort of glimpse into what the ministry of the Messiah is going to look like, they describe the first coming and the second coming 
in sort of overlapping terms to some degree. The way hmm. I've described it to the congregation from time to time is if you're looking down the road, if you're the prophet, you're standing in the prophet's shoes, you're looking down the road and you see two men walking on the road toward you. Yeah. And they may be separated by a hundred yards. But when hmm. but if you look at them down the road, they they could be side by side for all you know. Yeah. Because yeah. they're off in the distance. And so the prophets are looking down at the ministry of the Messiah and they're seeing this ministry coming toward them. But hmm. they can't really tell what the spacing is between his first coming and second coming. To them, it, it, it looks like here's one big event. And I think God is really presenting the ministry of the Messiah as one massive event. And so mm-hmm. there's the collapse. There, there's first his death, burial, and resurrection, which is an, a first sort of moment in that event. And then there's the collapse of the temple and the Jewish structure in 70 AD, which is another moment. There's the inclusion of the Gentiles coming in, streaming into the the church by faith, and that's another big event. And then there's obviously his second coming and maybe untold events in between, but then there's the, the his second coming, which is the kind of the culmination of that event. All of it is one big, you know, um, ceremony, as it were, of a coronation so, of the Messiah. I feel like you should be preaching Revelation. <laughs> I should be preaching Matthew. <laughs> I think that's really helpful. What you're it sounds like you're saying, and I there are similar places where this happens in the Old Testament, where in First Samuel, the priest are destroyed, Eli's sons are destroyed, um, and uh, Saul is later destroyed, and David is raised up out of all those things. The, the tearing down, the building up, the temple is later destroyed. Um, so it's almost like, here we go again, only this time the Messiah comes. I wonder, it sounds like what you're, if if it's that way, and I think it is, then I wonder if there wouldn't be even a little fear and trepidation in the disciples to hear that the Pharisees, who they have been believing this whole time are the safe ones, and they are the endangered ones, to now hear that the Pharisees, the righteous people who obey all the laws, that they are being given woes and that they are in danger. And I think in other places, the disciples ask it in such terms. Well, who can be saved? Is there, is there any room in your... And I'm, I'm just asking, I don't know. Is there any room in your chapter for that to be kind of a, well, good grief... You know, these are the guys. These are the saved guys. Yeah. Um, so now, now what? Now what? Think about just think about Matthew five, where in in that chapter he tells them your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. That phrase, mm. that sentence, is has to hit a crowd who has mm-hmm. thought of the scribes and Pharisees as the most righteous people among them. That has to hit them as well. That's a bar too high. I can't reach that, right? Yeah. That I can't do that, and I think that's why it in from eight to twelve, you know, I don't think your justification is the center of this text. I don't think it's the meaning of this text, but I think it is an important backdrop to the text. So if you think back yeah. to Matthew five again, I think I think the Sermon on the Mount kind of fuels so much of the rest of Matthew 
that it all mm-hmm. kind of ties back to that. The Sermon on the Mount has its tentacles wrapped throughout the rest mm-hmm. of the book. And I think this is one place where you see that, is he says mm-hmm. in three, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he's defining there the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, what that citizen looks like, what his character is like. He is poor in spirit, meaning that he doesn't see himself mm. as worthy of getting salvation or having salvation or, you know, him being, because I'm a Jew, I naturally, you know, am included in God's family. He sees himself as kind of the plebeian in Luke that sort of beats Mm -hmm. his chest, woe is me, you know, have mercy on me, Mm -hmm. a sinner. And -hmm. that's sort of the poor in spirit mentality. And so Mm -hmm. because of that, he gets to 8 to 12 in this passage, and he says, listen, you're not to be like that. You're to understand Mm -hmm. if you're poor in spirit— you're to understand that salvation was given to you by God. Yeah. And yeah. so you're not you're mm. not the rabbi. You're a brother with these people. Mm. Hey, I'm there with you. I was saved too. Do you know what I've come yeah. out of? You know, Paul yeah. coming out of murdering Christians and he's like, "Hey, I'm the chief of sinners, you know, and I'm right there with you. I'm your brother." And when you understand, when you have that understanding of your own justification that you know, have mercy on me, O oh God, a sinner. Then you're gonna you're gonna extend grace to the brothers around you. You're not gonna be looking mm. to be seen and seated at the foremost table because you're thinking to yourself, I cannot even believe I'm included in the dinner. Mm-hmm. You know, much less where I'm gonna be seated. Who cares? I get to eat of the Lord's food, mm-hmm. and and so for you, you're in a position of humility because of how you've been saved, how you came to salvation. Whereas the Pharisees right now are thinking they're deserving of it because look at what, look at what position of prominence they carry in society. Mm-hmm. But, but for the Christian, for the disciple of Christ, he's thinking to himself, man, I cannot believe that the Lord of all creation has included me in his family. What mm-hmm. an earth-shattering, crazy thought that is. I don't want to be called rabbi. I don't want to be... You know, I don't want to call somebody else. You're, you're my brother. You're my sister. Mm-hmm. We're, we're alike in that we have all been saved by grace. Um, so I think that's just an amazing, you know, culminating uh, thought at the end of his, his you know, message to, to his followers. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I like that. I want to listen to that <laughs> sermon. <laughs> I, I, I always it might be convicting in ways that might surprise me. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, so. it's been kind of working on me all week. Is is you know you, just thinking of yourself as a pastor. I mean, and and yeah. I'm not preaching this to pastors, but I think if I was preaching this at a seminary chapel or something like that, people that are getting ready to oh, be pastors, yeah. is just yeah. thinking thinking about how willing are you to get in the trenches with people. There's so many things you know when it comes to being a pastor. You know, whether it be phone calls you get or things you have to go do or things that you just know, ah, this is going to be so awkward or it's going to be so hard or it's difficult or, you know, maybe my relationship with this person hasn't always been the best or, you know, there's so many thoughts that go into your mind, just thoughts of discouragement, you know, and and it's sort of a it comes back to exactly why are you doing this? You know, why are you pastoring a church? Why are you preaching to these people? Are you telling Mm -hmm. them from the pulpit, hey, serve those around you? Mm -hmm. And then are you doing it? You know, Mm -hmm. and realizing that everybody's going to have to embrace the cactus from time to time, you know, Mm -hmm. 
that it's that it's not all going to be roses and that some of it is going to be really hard and nasty and dirty and sometimes things you don't really want to do or or maybe things that you have maybe ambiguous feelings about but it's all you know who are you serving that's the question you have to ask yourself is your heart in it to serve the lord and to serve his people you know and mm-hmm. so i think even to pastors you, you got to think, and that's been working on me all week. It's like, mm. man, how, how much do I love my people? And how, how much am I, you know, serving them? And am I really doing, you know, what's best for them week in and week out? And mm-hmm. am I, you know, that, that kind of thing. It's just, it, it, it's, it's really difficult, you know? It is. It's a, that's a hard question that is often a burden not a mm-hmm. burden is the wrong word, but it's often uh, a weight on my heart, a question mm-hmm. in my mind. Um, how, how am I doing in that way? How am I? Um, is my is my time balanced? You know, we started off a little while ago talking about time, and you know that question of you know it, how how do I how do I balance the preaching ministry with my uh, other pastoral ministries mm-hmm. um it's it's tough it's tough for sure mm-hmm. um i'm going to lead us out here with this quote um on the fear of the lord i think your passage made me think of this um this is from piper and the i guess a question real quick before i read the quote is what's the What's the tone that you see in your passage? Jesus has said this word, woe, I think, is it six times, seven times? Seven and, times following my passage, but yeah. Um, that's right, that's coming up. So, well, I guess first, does that really influence your tone of the passage you're preaching when you're not quite there yet, but you know that's coming? It's like a funeral you're about to go to. Um, what is the, the tone or the mood in this upsetting uh, belief in your works and righteousness and about exalting yourself, what, what's what's the tone in one word, do you think? Uh, what's the tone of the passage in one word? Yeah. Oh, good grief. Um, Angry, gracious, happy. Oh, I see what happy, you're saying. Oh, I see, what, um, I see what you're saying. Is it afraid? Is it what, what, what would you say is kind of the tone that you might paint your whole text with? Um, is care a tone? Caring, uh, I, sure. I, I, think, I think maybe the, the idea that I had in my mind is what he's trying to communicate to his audience is, uh, be, is to be careful, to, to have a, um, caution. a caution, yeah, yeah. a caution. cautious yeah. tone of just being sure to watch both word and action and that word and deed mm. align with the word and words and deed of Christ deeds of Christ. Yeah. You know, so that, I guess maybe cautious tone is, is kind yeah. of the, the thought that I had there. I don't know. Yeah, that's good. This is the Piper uh, quote from Piper that I'm thinking of in, uh, in his book, Providence. He is talking about delighting to fear in the Lord. He says the fear of the Lord is not the opposite of joy in the Lord. It is the depth and the seriousness of it. The fear of the Lord is not the opposite of joy. It is the depth and the seriousness of the joy. Mm-hmm. I, I almost 
I hear that I hear that in my passage and in your passage, and I think that's most. Uh, there's uh, if we're gonna look at the gospel, there's something that we ought to be really afraid of: <laughs> uh, us in our sin before God without Christ. Yeah, that's terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and yet we see Christ crucified, risen. What a, what a great joy! And we stand before God with both, uh, with both of those uh, great fear and great joy, trembling at His holiness, salvation, assurance that is totally of grace. Uh, so yeah, well, man, I, I hope that your week goes well. Uh, I'm anxious to hear how twenty three one through twelve goes. I'm anxious to hear the woes preached, and then I'm especially anxious for you to explain Matthew twenty four. In weeks to come. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited too. Awesome. Have a good week. Thanks for listening to the Fire and Bones podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing or following the show on your favorite listening platform so you can be notified every time a new episode is released. Consider leaving us a generous review if that's an option for you. And most importantly, share this podcast with someone that you think might benefit from it. Be sure to check the show notes for any relevant links, including our contact information. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions you might have. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Fire and Bones podcast. Thank you.